reading this morning is from Philemon, verses 1 through 22. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your love for all of his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement, because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, Yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is as none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent, so that any favor you do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. This is the word of the Lord. So when is the last time you can remember hearing a public reading of an entire book of the Bible? You just heard it, pretty much. All but about three verses. We just uh, clipped off a couple at the end. But that was Philemon. It's the shortest little epistle, little letter that Paul wrote. But it's profound and uh, packed with meaning. Uh, I don't usually uh, worry with sermon titles very much because most people don't pay attention to them. And if they did, they'd forget them. But this week, I, I bothered a bunch of people about my sermon title. I just asked questions. And I know they were getting annoyed. They were just being nice. Uh, when I would say, what do you think? A subversive revolution. And then I would tell them what I wanted to talk about. And at least one person said, well, I don't know, maybe it's a little redundant. Subversive revolution, a revolution is subversive. And I said, no, smart aleck, I'm going to use it anyway. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I, I said, well, yeah, maybe so. Um, maybe I should call it a quiet subversive revolution. Or maybe I should call it a quiet revolution. Or maybe I should just stick with the original title. A subversive revolution. So I did. Because what I wanted at least to communicate in the title was this. Not all revolutions are really quietly subversive. As a matter of fact, in 
our contemporary world, most revolutions are rather radical and big and, and sometimes violent. But this one was not. It was subtle, quiet, subversive. And the revolution I'm talking about is the revolution against slavery. Now, in our modern, contemporary, especially American culture, we happen to be very direct people, right? If you haven't traveled the world and found that out, you will if you travel the world. People expect it from us. We're supposedly rude and direct. We say what we think and we want to get the job done, get it over with, smash down the walls. Everything about this epistle is opposite that. It's subtle. It's careful, it's subversive, it's not in your face, but it's powerful. What about the book itself or the epistle, this tiny little letter? There's a lot of theories about the letter because we don't have many details. We don't have much of the background. All we know is some very basic things. And here's the basic things. The epistle is written from Paul to Philemon. Paul, an apostle, Philemon, likely a wealthy businessman who probably had more than one slave. It was just part of the culture. The main character in the story, besides Paul and Philemon, is Onesimus. And Onesimus is a slave to Philemon. Philemon, who is a dear brother in Christ to Paul, Philemon, who's a Christ follower, Philemon, who's a fellow worker and important to Paul, owns a slave. And Onesimus um, has been very useful to Paul. We don't know exactly how he came to know Paul, except we know, it seems, that he was a runaway slave. And somewhere along the way in Paul's imprisonment, Onesimus becomes important to him. You could see any number of reasons why that may be true. Onesimus, being on the outside of prison, may be able to do things for Paul that Paul couldn't do for himself. No matter, he's become very important to Paul. We see that in the letter. But if that's the background, what's the major message? By the way, short epistle, short sermon. Don't laugh. It will be. Here's the message. Paul says to Philemon, I have Onesimus, your slave and my brother. I'm returning him to you, but I want you to treat him no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Furthermore, when he arrives... I want you to treat him as you would treat me. Totem pole in the Roman world. Slave. No rights. Owned by another. Property. Chattel. Brother. To be embraced as an equal. To love as an equal. Apostle of the highest stature in the church. Paul stands out among all of them. And he says to Philemon, I don't want you to treat him as a slave anymore. 
Embrace him as a brother and treat him like me. That's basically the message. You know what's remarkable about that? He could no longer be a slave. He could not be embraced as a brother the way Paul was calling him to embrace him, Onesimus. He could not be embraced as if he were Paul if he is still a slave. The divine principle of love pulls out from under slavery its foundation. It's a subversive ethic. What we learn about this subversive ethic introduced by Paul, Christian ethic, is that it's starting to change society. In the church, it becomes apparent to us that slaves, former slaves, began to be important officials in the church, deacons and elders and sometimes bishops. And on one occasion, with uh, some letters back and forth in the first century, we hear Ignatius referring to a bishop whose name is Onesimus. You've got to wonder, don't you? We don't know. But you've got to wonder. We also see in Paul's official to the Colossians that Paul says, I'm sending Onesimus along with somebody else to greet you. Onesimus was in Paul's service as an extension of his apostolic authority. You don't do that as a slave. As a slave, you stay with your master. Things were changed with this direct Christian ethic. Now, let's be honest, okay, for a moment. With our contemporary American culture, how would we have wished it was? If you had the audacity to counsel Paul about the issue of slavery in the first century, wouldn't you have given him a little bit different advice? Might you have said, Paul, you need to create a direct, ethical, legal principle that you would call an assault on slavery. Something that would obliterate slavery. Take it on, Paul, as a cause. And make it go away. Had Paul done that, even if he had the power to do that, what we know historically is that society as they knew it would have crumbled at their feet. The infrastructure of society was so enmeshed with slaves and slave owners and workplace that the whole thing would have crumbled. So perhaps that's why Paul didn't say it as directly as we would. What we also know is that if slavery were overturned entirely, automatically, quickly, the slaves in that culture would be worse off than if they had been slaves. They would have been destitute if their masters were legally charged to release them. Because the legal charge to release them would come with absolutely no overture of grace or love, but just dismissal. And they would have been alone and destitute in the world. We also know that if Paul had been so bold as to make this his principal doctrine concerning the gospel, that the fledgling church, and it was fledgling, it was tiny, would immediately have been caught in the crosshairs of the Roman Empire as a political force to be dealt with. 
and squashed immediately. The church underwent enough persecution. Paul, I would imagine, would think to himself, this is not the way to go. So what instead does Paul do? Instead of a direct attack on the institution of slavery, Paul introduces a principle that undermines slavery. You cannot treat someone as a brother and also hold them as a slave. You can't receive them as an apostle and still have them in slavery. It's a subversive ethic that when individually owned destroys the fabric of slavery without destroying the fabric of society. Why? Because it's a Jesus principle. It's not just write up a law to destroy slavery. It's embrace that slave as if he were your brother, as if he were me, which means you release him from the master relationship and you support him like he's a brother. You figure out a way not just to release him, but to place him in the context of success in his world. You support him until he can support himself. You love him so well that it's as if you're loving your own flesh and blood. That's the Jesus principle. It's not just a law. And that's what Paul introduces to Philemon. It would erode slavery, but not destroy culture. Let's make some observations and application to this whole notion, shall we? Um, first is this. As I thought about Philemon this week and considered the truth that's in it, it occurred to me for more than the first time that Christian ethics is more than rules. Christian ethics is principles from the teachings of Jesus. That's what Christian ethics is. And isn't it beautiful and wise? Because principles are flexible to any culture in any era. Principles and the heart of the teaching of Jesus applies in multiple ways. You know what rules ethics look like? It's the way of the Pharisees. You know what principled ethics looks like? It's the way of Jesus. Remember the multiple stories between the teachers of the law? And there was nothing wrong with the law according to Jesus. But the way the teachers of the law were applying the law, remember those multiple stories and just remember how often Jesus basically stepped into the situation and applied a principle of ethics rather than a rule. The principle of divine love. How about when the woman was caught in adultery and the teachers of the law had her in the middle of a circle and Jesus ended up being part of the conversation and they said, Rabbi, the law of Moses calls us to stone this woman because he's fallen into adultery. And Jesus steps into the middle of the circle and draws something in the sand And then looks up and says, 
whichever one of you is without sin, pick up the first stone. Before he stands up and addresses them a second time, they're all gone. Jesus looks at the woman who's been caught in adultery. And he does not say to her, you know what, it doesn't matter. The law's really not that important. Sleep around as much as you want. (laughs) No, he doesn't say that. He says to her, Woman, where are your accusers? Where are those who want you dead? She said, well, Lord, they're gone. And he said to her, can I fill in the gap? I know what you've done. But go and sin no more. I recognize your sin and all of theirs. And my word to you is live a different way. Here's the grace of forgiveness. Now live according to it. That's the principle of the teaching of Jesus. It's not rules legalistically applied. Just think about the teachings of Jesus and his interaction with the Pharisees and see if a lot more of those things don't come to mind. Christian ethics is more than rules. It's the principles of Jesus. Rules are the way of the Pharisees. Principles are the way of Jesus. Christian ethics is also a progressive principle. Christian ethics is a progressive principle. Now, those of you who are particularly conservative, don't get wigged out, okay? I'm not going to go progressive theology on you and make it worse than it could be. I'm not suggesting that there are no particular standard approaches to ethics. I'm not undermining the Ten Commandments, okay? So hold your horses. What I am saying is this. Christian ethics are progressive principles. They're principles that are flexible, as I said, to any culture, any historical situation, and any personal situation. And here's the thing. Christian ethics beg to take the next step. Christian ethics doesn't give you an outline of how it's supposed to be. It gives you a principle for you to apply to every situation in life and to actually, I know it sounds like heresy, but to make it even better. What's better than the Apostle Paul's application of a principle in Philemon? Is Wilberforce is the 18th century understanding that began to overwhelm the church that we cannot enslave anyone and call them a brother. That's better than Philemon. Why is it better than Philemon? Because the principle is taken to yet a higher level. It's even taken to a global governmental level. I don't know if you remember the passage where Jesus says to his disciples, greater things than this will you do. 
greater things than this, the miracles, the teachings, all the things I've been doing. You're going to do greater things with these things that I've given you. What do you suppose he meant? I look at the passage like other people have commentators and say, well, surely he must have meant something like, well, you're going to multiply yourself. There's going to be a lot of Jesuses out there because you're going to walk and be the hands and feet of Jesus. And that's probably true. You're going to multiply yourself because you're not just going to be located in Palestine. You're going to be all over the world. And that's probably true. As a matter of fact, you're probably going to heal people in the name of Jesus. And it won't just be Jesus healing people. It will be Jesus' disciples healing people. And that will multiply. And that is true. But what else might be true? What else might be true is that the ethic of Jesus will be elevated even higher. Not the principle, but the purpose of the ethic of Jesus. We'll take it to the next step, says Jesus. That's your job. Do it. Apply the ethic. So Christian ethics is um, the principles of Jesus, but it's also progressive. And Christian ethics is, well, it's like the kingdom of God. There's a lot of stories about the kingdom of God that Jesus gave, but the one I thought of in this regard was the mustard seed. Remember that? Jesus said, tiniest of little seeds. And planted in the ground, it grows to a huge tree. And it shades so many people. Kingdom of God's like that. Just follow the ethic of Jesus. And like a tiny seed, it will grow and blossom and transform your world. That's our job. When I was a kid, I lived uh, two miles from the ocean. By the way, the stupid crow like flies. Um, I hate to say that. By the way, the crow flies. It was a, it was a mile from the ocean. and um, Obviously, I spent some time there. And somewhere around, I guess, the mid-70s, an odd thing began to appear on the beaches. Um, it was a tool. Uh, we always had fishing poles. We had buckets with little kids building sandcastles. We had surfboards. We had a lot of things. But this, this strange object appeared. It was long. People would walk with it like this and swing it side to side. And on the end, there was a huge disc. And you know what it was. It was a metal detector. And as they walked down the beach, they were looking for coins. Lots of them there. They were looking for expensive jewelry, which slipped off the hand of some unsuspecting swimmer. And they collected lots of money that way. I don't know how much. If I'd have known, I probably would have gone out and gotten one. And then I'd have been one of those guys in blue jean cut-off shorts and a t-shirt swiping the beach. But I didn't. I just know they were picking things up. also know that as they did this, every once in a while, it would go beep, 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 beep. And they'd stop. Beneath the surface, they would uncover something. If they were lucky, it wasn't a tin can. (laughs) It was something else. So here's the idea. Um, I want to turn the image a little bit on its head. Use the principle of divine love as a contradiction detector. Take the principle of divine love and wave it over your life. The situations you've encountered this week, the ones in the past, the ones you may 
encounter tomorrow. And as you wave it, and it goes beep, 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 there's something beneath the surface. Not a treasure this time. Something beneath the surface that's contrary to divine love. Pull it out. Get rid of it. And allow yourself to be conformed to the pattern of divine love. Where does this happen? At work. You have a face in mind? Where does this happen? At home. Do you have a spouse or a a child in mind? Where the principle of divine, not the rule, not the rule, the principle of divine love has been inconsistent with your actions, your words, or your lack of words. Where do you apply it? You apply it to all your relationships. You even apply it to your time and your money. And you listen for the promptings of the Spirit. Oh, now by the way, this could be a really negative exercise, right? Already sounds like that. But it's not. Not if properly motivated and properly applied. You know why? Because the principle of divine love, if we understand it and embrace it, is all that we want for ourselves and others because all we want is to follow Jesus. So when the principle of divine love determines something to be inconsistent in your life with divine love, it's a place for an intersection of grace. It's a time of great rejoicing because the veneer has been pulled off and you realize, you realize that you have not applied the principle properly And the Spirit has opened your heart to understand it. And the grace of Jesus Christ has been poured into you. And you can live the way you're called to live. Is there anything negative about that? Not a single thing. It's wonderful. It's what we were created to be. So, um, make your own list. Don't let anybody see the names. Or the situations. And take the principle of divine love and wave it over that situation and that person. And ask whether or not something comes to the surface. Just an exercise for the week. It might be helpful. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you uh, for your word. In this case, it came in such simple, practical, short form. Um, Paul just writing to one slave owner, about his slave. And with a few carefully selected, subtle words, he basically told us who would listen that it's impossible to embrace the notion of slavery or discrimination 
or hatred towards another person and still live the Christian ethic. The Christian ethic's just incompatible with those things, Lord, and and we know much of our lives uh, when it falls under the scrutiny of this principle of divine love comes up short. And that could be difficult. It, well, let's be honest, it is difficult. But it's also freeing. Because when we realize the principle of divine love, strips away the things and the situations that actually enslave us. That's wonderful, Lord. When we realize that we were powerless by our own hatred or powerless by our own evil heart and we allow divine love to be the rule We're freed from the power of hatred or envy. We're freed from the power of trying to get back. We're freed from the power, oh my, we're freed from the power of always trying to be right. It's a heavy weight uh, to be laden down by those and other sins and it's a delightful freedom to walk in divine love. So we pray you will open the eyes of our heart as the song says and uh, help us to see, to see clearly who we are and then to use the principle of divine love as, uh, as the grace that invades our life and intersects with our world. And as we do that, Lord, we pray that not because of you, but because, not because of us, but because of you people in our world will be transformed by the same grace that you've given us and that it will be reproduced over and over again. And we'll thank you in the name of Christ, our risen Lord, we pray. Amen.